The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. Good morning. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine, California, streaming online at KUCI.org and podcasting on iTunes. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. I'm Lloyd, the show's engineer. We've enjoyed bringing this show since 2005. Your host is Mari Frank, a local attorney since 1985. She's a certified information privacy professional and the author of several books, including Safeguard Your Identity, Protecting Yourself with a Personal Privacy Audit, and The Complete Idiot's Guide to Recovering from Identity Theft. Mari's testified many times on privacy issues in Congress and the California Legislature. She served as a privacy expert for numerous court cases nationwide and at a White House press conference featured on C-SPAN. You may have seen her on Dateline, 48 Hours, CNN, NBC, The O'Reilly Factor, and many more shows, including her own 90-minute PBS television special, Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. To learn more about this radio show and our great guests, please visit KUCI.org slash Privacy Piracy. Mari, what's our show about this morning? Today we have a wonderful guest who's a repeat guest with us. He's coming to us all the way from England, and his name is Jeff Revel. And Jeff has an incredible background. Let me tell you a little bit about him. He is CEO and Managing Director of CrowdThink LTD. He conceived and defined the crowd, and we spell crowd K-R-O-W-D. He, um, this is a location-oriented personal network, and right now it's in beta since April 2015, but it's due for launch sometime in the first quarter 2016, so maybe even at the end of our new January New Year. What makes Crowd different is its focus on connecting people in real life, making the social platform a more personal tool. Its co-location technology enables location-based services without tracking or even knowing location, which is giving us some privacy. Now, Jeff has spent the last 10 years as an independent strategic marketing consultant, and he's been helping some of the most innovative Silicon Valley and software companies break into and position themselves within tech markets. Previously, he worked in California after the company for which he was vice president in Europe was acquired by Wind River Systems. It was later bought by Intel and integrated into their Internet of Things systems and software division. Jeff's first leadership position was at Software Development Systems in Chicago, where he built a European turnover of 50000 to $10 million in just four over four years, and he was made VP in Europe. There's so much more I could tell you about him, but I really want him to tell us about CrowdThink. He's been on before, but he has some exciting news to tell us about trust and all of that. So um, let's talk about the trust model. What is your trust model, and why have you developed it? Thank you for having me today, Marie. Um, 
so yes, the trust model, um, what we've determined and, and understood was that in today's world, um, people have become much more aware of the nature of the products and companies they're engaging with. And if we really want to be serious about delivering privacy-centric solutions, we realized it was not about what we build, but just as much about how we build it. And we decided that before we even wrote the first line of code in the product, one of the things that was important to do was to determine how we were going to build the product so that we could engender trust from our users. Because we realized that in today's world, uh, people don't really want to spend time thinking about engaging online. That's what they've been you know, inured to. They, they're, they're familiar with just engaging and connecting and using. But at the same time, they want security and privacy as fundamental building blocks of, of the way in which they digitally engage. And security is an arms race that we'll never win. Um, privacy is a continuous challenge. It's, you know, we're always finding that, uh, shall we say, the nefarious are finding ways around intruding upon our privacy. So given that those two things are under continuous attack, what you've really got to do is say, how are we going to build a product that is fundamentally trustworthy? And so that's what we actually did. We actually sat down and, and tried to figure out what is trust in digital engagement and how do we build it? And we did that before we even wrote the first line of code. Yeah, you and I have talked before that, you know, Scott McNeely has said, you know, you have zero privacy, get over it, it's done, right? <laughs> and and it's no longer valid. Um, so do you, what do you think about that? I mean, do you really think that that's that as true as it was in 1999 when when they everybody else was saying there is no privacy? Um. No, we don't think it's true. Um, we think a, a couple of important things have fundamentally changed. Um, one aspect is the change in people's attitude. Um, when when ser online services are free, which, by the way, they never are, right. we consumers don't really pay uh, until much later, long after we've forgotten you know, what we gave away for the service provision we've received. But what's happening today is that with all these privacy breaches that we're now seeing, you know, the tens of millions of bank accounts hacked at J.P. Morgan or the, you know, the personal lives hacked at Ashley Madison, consumers are becoming aware that they need to take care online. Um, the rise of the ad blocker is a, is a knee-jerk reaction, a valid one. Um, but frankly, we think that the issues go much deeper. So time has become a tremendous educator. So since 1999, the consumer is now much more aware of the depth of the information that's being obtained about them and how they're being profiled. And what's really important is that they're now much more familiar with the consequences being visited upon them. Um, a good example of that was when TalkTalk Talk in the UK was hacked. What, uh, you know, there was a short-term impact on TalkTalk Talk share prices, but the real people that suffered were the individuals because when they were hacked, the insights that the hackers obtained allowed them to, you know, defraud these people online by, you know, having so much insight and so much information about them that they could pretend to be talk talk and convince them to do things that otherwise they would never have done right. without that level of information being, you know, handed over. So, you know, the the consequence of all that information being collated, not being properly taken care of, What's happened since 1999 is we are now understanding, because we are directly suffering the consequences, we're now understanding um, why we need to take care online. 
And so privacy has become something that people realize they absolutely need to have. They don't quite know how to get it, but they know they want it. Right. The other aspect is the change of legislation, of course. Right. And so let's so, talk a little bit about that change in legislation, not only in our country, but, but throughout the European Union. Yeah. So, you know, as these breaches have occurred, and in America, the way, you know, things tend to get improved is that, you know, a problem happens and a piece of legislation is done, is, is executed to ensure that doesn't happen again, and so on and so forth. So the, the body of legislation builds itself up, um, and we are beginning to see an increasing level of privacy capability, um, you know, and, and empowerment through legislation in America. Europeans are doing it differently. Europeans have sat back and gone, you know what, we need to really rethink with the whole legislative structure itself, the way we've implemented it, what we really mean by privacy. And what's really interesting is that they've come back and they've spent years articulating what should be done, using all the lessons that the, you know, the consumers have learned over the last 10, 15 years and inculcated that into the new legislation, which has just been approved to go for uh, sign-off at statute, which is called the General Data Protection Regulation. This replaces the existing um, Data Protection Act. So that's a big difference between them, by the way. One's an act and one is regulation, uh, which makes the, the, uh, the legal statute component much stronger. And there's a lot of good stuff in the GDPR from the consumer point of view. So what we're seeing is, is a combination of really two things happening at the same time. What we're saying is that the individual who has learned that they need to take care online, that the consequences accrue to them and not to the corporate entities, and that now they're being given the tools to do something about it, to be empowered, to kick back and say, you know what, I don't like it, and I don't want it, and I want a, a better solution. And this is going to create a fundamental change in, in frankly, in whole business models and commercial engagement models for the internet because things that culprits could get away with before, they're going to find it increasingly difficult to do tomorrow. And as most corporate commercial models are based on your data, then as you take control of that data, as you are empowered to just, you know, be in control of your online life, that's going to need a different type of engagement model for businesses. And I think it's very healthy that um, the European Union is going to, you know, not put up with what the United States has been doing. Let's talk a little bit about this, this new uh, general data protection regulation, and because it's very different from what's happening here in the United States, but it's going to impact us as well. So can you give us some of the key points? Well, there's, there's several sort of key points to it um, in, in the legislation as a whole. Uh, one is that there is a much stronger definition um, of the nature of people who are operating on the data. So in the past, if you were the, you know, the person obtaining the data, you, it was clear that under the Protection Act you had to take care of it. Right. But now there is um, additional strength to it because now a lot of this data gets shared directly and indirectly. And so now it's much clearer that if you're a data processor, in other words, you're acting upon the data, in some way, shape, or form, that may even have been obtained for the third party, that you're going to be held as accountable as, uh, you know, the originator or the original obtainer of that information. 
and this is going to make it very, very difficult for you know the black market in in uh, shall we say data aggregation that's been going on for years right. uh, for that business to continue. It's going to be very difficult for them. Um, other things include you know the the you know the right to delete, which is a really interesting one. Um, so now, if it's, if a company has your data. Um, and you decide that you know you don't want them to have that data anymore. You can just say, delete it, and they have to delete it because. So this this fundamental idea of it's your data is going to be enforced through the law. So in the past, so for example, on Facebook, they make it very clear: everything that you do on Facebook belongs to us, and we can do right. anything we like with it. Right. Under the new legislation, that's no longer the case. Under the new legislation, if it's your data, and, and, and basically it's getting clear as to what your data is, in other words, anything that pertains to you, right. it's going to be much, much more um, difficult for companies to take that attitude. And that fundamentally changes you know, the whole business model and the engagement model. So it's going to be very difficult for the historic business models that facilitated some of the large corporates today to continue tomorrow. They're going to have to adjust. They will be given time to adjust because enforcement doesn't happen for another two years. But uh, they know what's coming now. And by the way, the fine system has, this is probably the biggest change of the lot, the fine system has changed from a maximum of a few, few hundred thousand, you know, almost like a slap on the wrist of the big corporates. You know, frankly, uh, you know, they could have meetings and say, well, if we take this data and do naughty things with it, what's the risk of the business? Oh, my God, it's a few hundred thousand. We're going to make 10 million. Right, we'll take right. the risk. Right, right. Right. Yeah. Now, the fine is up to 4% of your global turnover, mm. which is enough to make any CXO take a deep breath and think about things much, much more differently. And certainly the, uh, you know, the cost of doing business mentality, which has definitely existed in some companies, is going to be, um, shall we say, punished very severely if it continues. Right. So there's going to be a lot more, a lot more enforcement ability. Um, You know, like in our country, we've got the Federal Trade Commission that enforces, you know, uh, some of the, uh, you know, Graham Leach Bliley, et cetera, et cetera. But it sounds like they're, you know, and they do slap on the wrist and they have some big, you know, when they take some civil action, there are some things too. But, um, you know, I think people in this country are more worried about private litigation. So, like, for, uh, you know, for instance, most of the time in our country, if you have a data processor um, and you're a big company and you're sued, you then go ahead and you cross-complain against whoever was your data processor. You have contracts that do it. but So it's different in the European Union. You have less of the civil litigation and you have more of the enforcement by the data, uh, the data authorities, right? Would you say that's yeah, correct? You have, a, you have, a, you have a, the Information Commissioner's Office who is effectively the organization that will enforce on your behalf. Right, and right. they can enforce on your behalf because, by default, you have well-defined rights. Right, and you can say my right has been, you know, uh, abused, and I want this company dealt with, and and that's it. You just hand over the, the you know, the request right. and responsibility to the ICO, and away they go. And that's good because then if you actually have a chance of it enforcement because in, in the United States with the Federal Trade Commission, you make complaints, but they, they won't do that on your behalf. They do it on behalf of all consumers and you don't get anything out of it. So with the, like the uh, European Union and the, and the countries and all of your data pr- commissioners, does the actual uh, victim of, of some 
data breach does do they get come you know do they get money from it or do they get compensation or something from it or does only the no no okay. not, well not that i've seen so far i mean it'd be interesting to see how that plays out when the when the numbers i mean in the past the numbers have been so low it have been you know too costly to even distribute a proportion out to the affected consumers so it would have been a joke to even try and do it It'll be interesting to see if, if that kind of you know, discussion comes forward once we're talking about tens of millions or hundreds of millions of dollars um, being in the fines. What I find more interesting in many ways is that, of course, up until now, the structure of our enforcement policies have meant that the enforcement agencies are largely a cost to the economy, to the government. Right. Because the amount that they used to pull in versus the amount they costed was pretty small. Whereas now, if you think about it, as these guys have much more power to um, to execute much stronger fines, they will become an indirect taxation mechanism for government, and I suspect will become far better funded in future budgetary allocation rounds for governments. Right. And so, what you have is kind of a not only a reversal, but an actual change, you know, a massive change in direction in terms of enforcement potential. Uh, because companies will you know, find themselves being fined and the money that they're fined being used to increase the enforcement capacity so that they're more likely to get chased the day after tomorrow and the day after that. So the data commissioners are going to have quite a bit of power, aren't they? I mean, they always have had power, but now they're going to seem to have a lot more. Are They're the enforcers, right? Well, they're going to have teeth. Um, interestingly, yeah. I've always said the Federal Trade Commission has had teeth. When when the Federal Trade Commission decides to bite in America, they bite hard, much yeah. harder than the data commission over here has ever done or been able to do. Um, now that's changing. The teeth on this side of the pond are just as strong, but they're backed by a set of consumer rights that don't exist in America. Right. So it's going to be very interesting to sort of see how, you know, that changes the power game in terms of, um, and it comes down to the trust agenda, how are, you know, organizations going to leverage this change in legislation because the change in legislation enforces a rethink of business company culture and sometimes their business revenue models themselves, mm. that creates an opportunity for innovators, for trust and privacy-based innovators to say, you know what, there's going to be a gap. And these big super tanker companies are going to find it difficult to steer around this change, whereas we can just step in and, and innovate and disrupt. Right, right. So that's what we're hoping to see happen. Um, and so we want the plan to be part of that game. And trust is so important. Let you know. You talk about the difference be- between being trusted and being trustworthy. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Well, being trusted is what most brands want, and they you know often build out as part of their brand strategy. You know, a, a trust index, and they kind of measure it, and they say, you know, we're scoring highly, uh, and and therefore because we're trusted highly, we can charge more, or we can penetrate more markets, or do this sort of stuff. Right. right? So, um, you know, that's how the corporate looks at it. And that, so there's not really a two-way relationship in that. Um, you know, you trust somebody because you believe they're trustworthy right. in, a, in a relationship. And that's very different from a brand marketer's point of view that says we've obtained their trust and now we are empowered to do things with it. And the problem with that model is that the more you are empowered with trust as a corporate, then uh, actually, if you think about it, if data equals revenue potential and corporate law requires an executive of a company to maximize revenue, 
by definition, his job is to maximize the data he can get from you, which puts you at a privacy risk, which undermines your um, you know, online security. And so you have this kind of horrible uh, tension that if you don't build your company to be trustworthy as opposed to trusted, that tension will always exist because it's, it's understood by the shareholders. It's, you know, it's just your job to make money. Whereas right. if the shareholders understand that actually you're seeking to be tr- worthy of people's trust, then, and that becomes inculcated at the corporate level and understood in the articles of association of the company, then that's a very different mentality, drives a very different culture through the organization. And, you know, it means that you're now no longer looking to get empowerment through trust, but actually to get engagement through a trustworthy relationship. And I think that's the fundamental difference between, um, you know, trust as it's usually used by corporates and being trustworthy, which is what the innovators can seek to become. Yeah, yeah. It's going to change the digital engagement model. Right, right. You know, I don't know if you know what LifeLock is, but that's a company that does identity theft protection services, and they have a an incredible marketing model. But um, and and they tell how they can be trusted and all these things. But they have been fined several times, and just recently a, a much bigger fine for for really deceptive practices. So we've got this company that is touting itself as being this trusted company. And then, of course, we're finding that it is not trustworthy at all. So what are some of the, well, you talk about three key practices for building trust in in digital engagement. So um, can can you go through some of these? Sure. Um, So to me, the fundamental... um, Sort of principle that one has to get into one's head when, when thinking about a trustworthy relationship is one of empowerment. And this is the thing that corporates tend to not want to talk about, but actually a truly trustworthy relationship is one in which we feel equally empowered to engage with each other. And whereas, of course, a corporate entity's objective is to be in the position of power to maximize the revenue opportunity for their shareholders. So if you think about it as a, you know, in broad terms as an empowerment agenda, what are the three, you know, that we, we believe there are three fundamental things that we need to focus on to deliver a rebalancing of the empowerment agenda in the digital engagement model. The first and most obvious is transparency. Right. We need to know as consumers what data you hold on me. And I don't just mean, you know, my name and address. I mean the metadata uh, about how I'm interoperating with your environment and how you've derived knowledge about who I am and how I think from that. Right. That includes, by the way, anything you know derived algorithmic data, because if it's data that's been you know was originally mine that you then operated on algorithmically, it's still mine. It still relates to me. Yeah, but it has to be. Yeah, but I, well, let me just stop you there, though. I mean, it has to be something that the average consumer can understand. So if you, oh, yeah. you know what I mean, it, that I just want to clarify that, that, you know, if I know they're holding my social security number and I know that they're holding, you know, all about my whole profile on my family, I want to know that. Um, I'm not sure I'm going to understand all of their al- algorithms, though. So that that was just a well, No, you won't have to understand the algorithms. But no, I agree. You, you need to spend time to communicate it clearly. But But let's be fair it's very unlikely the average consumer can understand the complexity of the data. Right, so right. What you have to, but, if, but if you're totally open and transparent about it, 
and you make it available not just to your customers, but to anybody who wants to view the nature of the data that you're obtaining and what you're doing with it, yeah. then there is certainly a subset of people out there that can go look at it and go, okay, what they're up to seems reasonable, or hang on a minute, yeah. why are they getting this data and what are they doing that with it? Right. And open it, you know, make it available for debate. Right. Point. Right. The second, the second principle to, uh, to you know, balance the empowerment agenda is ensuring you give people control over how their data is used. Right. A clear, intuitive understanding that clicking a box means that a specific item of data goes to a specific entity for a specific purpose and no other. Right. You know, that, we have, that what we're doing is an implicit opt-in mechanism. Right? And an explicit opt-in really means that we've got to have informed consent Prior consent, yeah. Communication, right? Yeah, and and that so that when when you build an app, our app has no privacy settings in it, and the reason it has no privacy settings in it is because we try to make it very clear that this piece of information, and when you click this box, this is what's going to happen to it, right? And as long as you know that, you can choose to to do that or not. There's no reason to have a, a privacy setting. Uh, because, you know, if we're not doing anything untoward with that data other than what you've understood through the application interface, why do we need a privacy setting? If you think about it, the very existence of a privacy setting implies that you're trying to do stuff with my data that I wouldn't want you to do. Exactly. We shouldn't have privacy settings in an application. Right, right. We should have none. Right. right? The more there are, the more you have to worry about, in my opinion. <laughs> right, right. And the last one, did you, was that the and last the one? the last one. Yeah, because we and don't have a lot one, of time, so you've got to be quick on this one. Okay. So the last and perhaps most important one of them all is the right of remedy. If we believe that we have uh, lost trust in an entity, then we should have the right of recourse, not just through the law, but to immediately impact that company in such a way that they will take notice if a large number of customers start doing something like deleting all their data, for example. If your company is starting to lose all its data because people have that immediate right when they lose trust, you're going to do something about it fast or die. Right. That is consumer empowerment. Oh, great. Well, that is a great way to end. I want to send everybody to your website because I know you're doing such great work. So why don't you give your website and it's time to go? I will do that. Um, our website is crowds.com with a K. Um, and if you go to our privacy page, you'll see our trust model there. Um, and we're also going to be um, uh, sponsoring a very important event that's going to talk about legislation and privacy innovation. And that website is the privacyadvantage.com. Okay. And that will be going live in the new year. Very good. So it's crowd, K-R-O-W-D, think, T-H-I-N-K, I'm sorry, let me do that again, K-R-O-W-D, think, T-H-I-N-K.com as well, correct? Correct, yes. Okay, well, thank you so much, and Happy New Year. Thank you for joining us. Bye-bye. Happy New Year to you. Bye-bye. Thank you, bye. Stay private. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. I'm Mari Frank, host of Privacy Piracy, which airs every Monday morning at 8 a.m. right here on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. I'm also pleased to present the weekly segment of Orange County Sheriff News and Safety Tips. And today we are welcoming 
Deputy Greg Sorrell, who's been with the Orange County Sheriff's Department for over eight years, and he's currently a deputy assigned to South Patrol Aliso Viejo as a motor officer, and he's also an explorer, advisor, and the president of the Orange County Law Enforcement Explorer Advisors Association. So why don't you tell us about what explorers are and about the organization? Sure. Uh, the Explorers are a, uh, a volunteer program for kids from 18, correction, 14 to 21 years old. Um, they volunteer in a special event, and um, they go to an Explorer Academy. They also compete in an Explorer competition. Terrific. How about the organization? The uh, Oakley Organization, or the Orange County Law Enforcement Explorer Advisors Association, is a nonprofit organization which assists all Orange County and some outside of Orange County agencies with mutual aid for special events. Explorers do traffic control, racism, parades. Uh, Oakley holds the two Explorer Academies per year for new explorers. They, the uh, Explorer Academies consist of physical fitness, classroom time, which includes you know ethics, basic, basic report writing, DUI investigation, domestic violence, gangs, drug enforcement, uh, etc. The academy is a five-day living academy at the Irvine Outdoor Education Center in Irvine, and Oakley holds an annual explore competition where the explorers get to compete in events such as felony car stops, domestic disputes, crime scene investigation, DUI investigation, and building searches. It's so Hopefully true. Yeah, those kids are terrific. I've I've actually been with them and at the uh, Orange County Fair, and they've done a great job. What a wonderful thing to have them learn all these great skills and ethics. I just applaud you for the great work that you're doing. You're terrific, Deputy Greg Sorrell. Thank you. Thank you very much. All right, we'll have you back again to tell us more about how people can get involved with that program. All Sounds right? Great. Okay, bye. Bye-bye. 